Obviously, somewhere like England, you have to take time to fit in. I didn't know the lingo. I remember this girl telling me I was fit, and I thought she meant, do I work out? I didn't realize I had an opportunity to actually go on a date. <laughs> Welcome to I Am an Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, and yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. In this episode, I talk with Babu Sise an actor from Gambia who you may have seen in his BAFTA-nominated performance in the BBC film Damiola, Our Loved Boy, or in the Star Wars film Rogue One, and the list goes on. He plays the lead in a new Sky crime drama, Wolf, created by one of the UK's most acclaimed TV writers, Paul Abbott, and which is coming out this autumn. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the twists and turns of Babu's life from barely getting by working as a cleaner in London, to his stint in the corporate world with Deloitte in the city, to biting the bullet and applying to drama school. Babu was candid about the toll some of his experiences have had on him and also how weird and wonderful life can be. Enjoy. My name is Babu Sise and I'm an immigrant. It's great to have you on the show, Babu. Great to be here, Christine. And tell me, is Babu a common name in, in West Africa? In Gambia, it is equivalent to John and C says to Smith. So I am John Smith. You're John Smith. Yeah. That's hilarious. So your parents are both from Gambia, right? Both mom and dad from Gambia. Yeah. Gambia would have just come into independence, you know, not long after that. So there was a sense of joy, possibility for everybody. There was opportunities coming up, you know, for people to step up, black people to step up and start taking on roles and shaping the country. So it was just a little bit of that going on. You know, they were the, one of the first people to go and buy land out in Fajara, which is now sort of the main area. My dad worked for the bank. He managed to get an opportunity actually to come to the UK and brought my mom with him. They already had my older sister at the time. They left her there, but they came here. And that's when I was born, while I was out here. So were you the only one of your siblings that managed to get the British citizenship? Yeah. Yeah, it was before 1981, wasn't it? In 1981, it changed and then the birthright citizenship was abolished. So you you just got in there. I remember talking to Lucien Msamati, who I know you know quite well. He talked about this because he, he had the same situation. And his parents actually had a debate about it just because they were worried he might lose his identity or his connection to his home if he got this passport. I don't know. How did your parents feel about it? They were happy for me to have the passport, saw it as an opportunity. However, they absolutely had no plans. Actually, that's not true. I was going to say they have no plans to stay in the UK. My mom certainly didn't want to stay at all. So recently, she actually told me this story. They were due to leave potentially in September. She'd already packed most of her stuff by April. Yeah. She said, <laughs> I, the moment I knew we were going, I started packing. She said, I just could not wait to get out of the UK. She said, I just never felt at home here. Don't get me wrong. She loves the place, loves visiting, loves London, goes up everywhere, Manchester, Birmingham. She's probably been to more places than some UK, you know, based citizens, etc. But she just couldn't do it. My dad, on the other hand, because he had his job at the Bank of America, a car was coming to pick him up, was beginning to settle into the idea that he could do something. But my namesake, my dad's dad, advised him when they were leaving not to take my big sister with them. He said, if you take her, you won't come back. Really? We're here and we want you back. So so he convinced my dad to leave my big sister behind, which my mom agreed to. And they left her with my mom's sisters. 
And um, after I um, was born, about 10 months later, they moved back to Gambia. And then after a while, I think with my mom, they had a lot of family pressure, I'd say. Quite a number of people who were dependent on them. At one point, quite a number of people were living in my house. I remember the three of us kids would actually share their bedroom. So we'd be on the floor because all the other bedrooms were full. Um, You know, it's part of the culture. You know, it's very communal. So it was like, well, we'll just look after everybody. That's fine. But it wasn't fine, obviously. There was a lot of pressure on, on them. And so in the end, we moved to Togo when I was about six went to a completely different life, French country. There was only one English, two English-speaking schools, and that's the American school and the British school. And the British school had just been set up by two hippies who were driving through <laughs> West Africa, decided to stop in Togo and thought, we know, well, well, two teachers actually, but that's what they called themselves at the time. They said, we're just hippies on a motorbike. And we decided we'd set up a school. And that school has actually become one of the best schools in Africa. Very good ethos and did incredible things there. We're fa- famous and infamous. <laughs> We've provided, produced all kinds of people. So did you go there? I went there, yeah. Until 14, there was a bit of trouble in Togo, of infighting in the government, gunfire, you name it. Yeah, lots of people fled at that time, didn't they? So yeah. did you witness any of that violence? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as in, it was there, you know, it was on the TV, when you're sitting on your balcony, suddenly you see what looks like fireworks flying through the air and you know it's the AK-47 kickback, you know, even at that age, you start to understand how these things go. Or suddenly it looks like there's a sunrise. <laughs> it's a big round halo that appears first in the middle of the night. That's when we sit on our balcony to watch TV or, you know, get a cool breeze. And then you see it and you know it's a bomb. And then the next thing you hear is the sound. Because first it's the light and the sound arrives. Boss, you're like, okay. And, you know, my dad, my mom, they were very together. Like, they'd be like, okay, that looks like it's over there. So let's just chill, watch more TV. And then we kind of keep an eye on it. If it if the noise starts getting too loud or so on and so forth, then you go to your bedroom. If it starts getting worse, then you get under your bed. You know, it's we just kind of took it. And it's amazing your state of mind. I wasn't afraid. I just was maybe detached, disassociated from it. Now I think how it manifests itself is that I'm very aware of security. So I'll make sure doors are locked. I'll check. And if I'm not convinced, I will double check. I haven't got OCD yet, but I'll certainly check that it's safe. And another thing I'll check is for escape routes. I don't want bars on windows. I want to be able to get out of them if I need to. But I'm not thinking about fire. I'm thinking about someone with spurious motives coming. <laughs> I went back to Gambia at the age of 14 and went back to Togo at the age of 16 to do my IB. So it was Gambia, Togo, Gambia, Togo, right. There was yeah, a yeah, yeah. period there were back and forth. Two years to do my own levels in Gambia. Two years to do um, my IB, International Baccalaureate. When I graduated, I think it was just a given. I was going to the British School of Lomé. A lot of people are applying to the LSCs, the UCLs, the Imperials of this world. At that time, I actually didn't know what unis were which. I wanted to study medicine. So I applied to Leeds University through the UCAS system, all of that stuff at in Togo. I was a British citizen, so my parents just assumed, you know, when I get to the UK, I can go to uni, pay the £1,000 fee, et cetera, et cetera. I got here and I got my acceptance and all the finances started. We found out that I wasn't going to be eligible for home student fees. Yeah, I heard you talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of a technicality, isn't it? That you have to have lived here for three years or something. Outside full-time education, not just lived here. So when would that be? That would be in the, I guess if they're counting days and months, they mean summer holidays and stuff, but it would be the three years before you start nursery school. Really? I wasn't even close. So. My dad, again, had to have a difficult conversation with me and said, listen, I can't pay for it. It, You know, medicine was 18,000 pounds. He was expecting a thousand pounds. He said, I haven't got the finances to do that. So, you know, do you want to come home? Do you want to take a year off? What do you want to do? I said, well, I want to take a year. 
I'll travel. I'll go to America to be with my bro, my older brother, and do some work there and just get life experience and then come, you know, that's what, that was my plan. But I moved to the States and three months in, I thought, not for me. Why? <laughs> what, what was it? What was it about? Where, where in the States was it? In New York. Uh, my okay. brother lives in New York. We're in, we're in the Bronx in a place called Parkchester. 20 story high rise. We're in a 15th floor. It was a rough, rough, rough neighborhood. You know, Gambia, you can go to one of the roughest neighborhoods and still feel safe. There's a sort of almost communal acceptance of a difference in wealth and so on and so forth, whatever that may be. But pe- people tend to just connect with each other in a different way. Whereas in the States, when I was in Rochester, I really felt like, wow. It, and it wasn't, it was everything. It was like, I'd be sent to go get milk in the morning. And when I walk into the shop, there's maybe six people in the line. I walk in all vexed looking because it's six in the morning and everybody's eyes on me. Not only that... If I look like I'm walking towards them, they're stepping back. So I noticed that and I made a point of walking around the entire store, get the milk and then go to the back of the line. To show that at least, you know, no matter what I look like, I'm, I'm not a criminal. I'm not trying to do anything to you. Interestingly, the guy behind the counter who I knew a lot by then, this Lebanese guy, spoke fluent Wolof because he spent a lot of time in Senegal. He literally said to me in Wolof, huh, they're scared of you. You know, there as well, the African-Americans weren't particularly welcoming in Rochester. <laughs> Once they realized yeah. I was an African-African, that was like interesting, you know, and I could play basketball quite well. So all of that experience, trying to find work, New York from the films, and I'm a film buff, is mm. very different from New York when you're destitute. And I had so little money at times, in fact, all the time. But I remember I landed in the day Princess Diana died, and I turned on the TV, and that was all over the news. And I sort of sat there for three days, pretty much watching that. And I, I think looking back, I, I didn't want to go out and face the world either <laughs> because it wasn't home anymore. It was very different, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, did that three months, thought, forget it. I can't do this. America's not the place for me. Even if England is cold and tough, at least I have a British passport. At least I understand the transport system. And with the British passport, I could potentially get work. So I came back, spent nine months here working Palmer's Green. I worked for Laundry craft, I think they're out. They used to do lots of laundry for the all the big um, hotels in town. So they'd bring all their towels there. It's a big industrial place. And I was their cleaner. Yeah. Easily a five-person job. I wasn't hired directly by the company. Actually, I don't want to get them in trouble, but that's the truth. It was a Sierra Leonean woman who was being paid £7 an hour to do the job, who had also another job, who sub-hired me and paid me £3 an hour. What a racket. Yeah. I'd get up at about three in the morning because I couldn't afford the bus. So I'd walk. Oh, man. Get there after an hour, start around four-ish because it was supposed to be a five till 7 a.m. shift for six quid, but that's food. So I was happy. But yeah. it turned out to be a four till 9 a.m. And I would basically clean the office as well. I remember as well how nobody looked at me. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there thinking all these administrators and people in here who I could probably do their job, but they never looked at me ever. I'd be emptying their bins. They just had no energy that said, you're here. We will do everything in our power to make sure you know you are not here. I had a Walkman and I just did my job. You must have been very lonely though, at 18 year old. Extremely lonely. I mean, I was doing some, I've been doing life coach recently and we do EFT, you know, the tapping. Yeah, we're doing this tapping, you know, it's sort of, it helps with any sort of blockages, anxiety and things like that. Look, it's brand new to me, but it has been extremely effective. And we were tapping. She just mentioned this loneliness that you've dealt with. Of course, in my job right now, I have to deal with loneliness. Since you were 18, she said that, and I just broke down. I couldn't even keep it in. It came out like torrents. And then she got me to embrace, in a moment of genius from her, she said, well, if it wasn't for that 18-year-old, you wouldn't be sitting now where you are. 
I'm proud of what I put up with back then, but I was lonely. I was lonely. I had no friends, no British friends. I had some gamins that I knew here. Obviously, somewhere like England, you have to take time to fit in. I didn't know the lingo. I remember this girl telling me I was fit, and I thought she meant, do I work out? I didn't realize <laughs> I had an opportunity to actually go on a date. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I actually I actually don't go to the gym, to be honest, so I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about, you know. I did all kinds of jobs, door knocking, trying to sell gas and, and phones, worked for um, Ticketmaster here in Leicester Square, selling mm-hmm. tickets in County Cork and County Dublin and Wembley yeah. Stadium and wherever and Birmingham NEC, um, any job. Just grafting it, grafting it. Not used to it, actually. Almost didn't want to go to uni. Um, but then my dad made me apply again, which I did. And this time I got unconditional offers because I already had my grades and mm-hmm. Imperial accepted me for microbiology. I didn't want to do medicine as 18K. So I ended up, and now I don't regret it. It's the best thing that could have ever happened. I don't think I would have made a very good doctor. And I got into Imperial to do microbiology. So did you still have to pay the, the yep. international fees? Oh, wow. So your dad was Otherwise, kind of putting the money together. Yeah. He, he took that, that time. year to put the money together. Then actually he got a job at the UN toward in my last year, which paid some of it. You know, on the whole, my mom and dad, my mom as well, my mom um, is a clothing designer. So she was in her atelier making clothes, creating, uh, finding clients. She had this particular client who would buy a suitcase worth for two, three grand, you know, or four grand. And that's a chunk of my school fees. And so yeah. she'd fly to England, make all the sales, fly to America, make more sales, fly to Germany, make more sales, come back. And her and my dad together would cobble away to pay for it. Had you made friends by then? At uni, I made some really good friends. Ratesh Bhatt, mm. one of my best friends, um, still is. I met my first girlfriend there. Um, on day one, she came and went, bop, bop, hello, I am. And then we sort of connected. Her name was Shayla, and we connected that way. And we ended up actually staying together almost six years. No, four and a half, five years. Yeah. Uh, so that made it less lonely. Made it way less lonely, yeah. <laughs> and can I ask you, can I ask you, Babu, I'm from Australia and so when I meet Australians here, the first thing we kind of check out is like, oh, <laughs> what's your visa status, you know? Or the, then the next thing is um, where's, where do you get good coffee? Because we're obsessed with coffee, like yeah. uh, especially in Melbourne. So what do Gambians check out with each other? Well, I mean, checking the visa status with me, obviously, is not great because I'm like, I have a British passport. Yeah. <laughs> what Gambians tend to talk about is if they hear that you've got some sort of passport, they immediately want you to take advantage of all the perks that come with that. But they're also talking to you about all the um, places that you can get stuff for better value. I don't want to say cheaper. That's not right. You know, they'd be like, let's go go to Dalston to shop. <laughs> okay. Get your local pastries. Get get your suitcase to get on the train, go all the way to Dalston, buy these three for five packs of chicken. So you get 15 chicken legs for three quid. Do this, do that. Pack it all up. Come get a good freezer, a big sink freezer. Fill it up with food. So at least you know no matter what happens, you'll have food. Some of the people who are also British citizens, you know, were like, look, apply for a council flat apply for council flat. And I remember I had one conversation because I was living with a friend in their council flat, not even long term, but I was there for a bit. And I talked to the lady who basically looks after him, I guess. She talked me through the process. But at the end of it, Christine, I thought council flats for other people. It's for people who need it. I don't think I do. And I'm, I'm going to just wait until I can get my own place. And also I did that with even education. When I had kids in this country, I'd only ever known for my education being paid for. So by that time, it had become really solid in me that as far as I can, I don't want the British government to give me anything. <laughs> Seriously, I even sometimes go private when I'm sick. Like when my parents were sick, I took them private. It's because at home, you pay for your way. You cannot buy an iPhone if you don't have the money for an iPhone. There's no higher purchase. You cannot yeah. buy a house because there's no mortgage. 
Do you not see your taxes and your national insurance as paid? Oh, yeah. And they take a lot. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. I, I can imagine. Don't get me wrong. I got to stages as an actor where I was so broke. There was two stints, once six weeks on the dole and another time four weeks on the dole. But, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the number of weeks. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about microbiology. What did you enjoy about it? The reason I picked biology and microbiology is because this guy from Newcastle called Kevin Glass, and I want to give him a big shout out. He traveled to West Africa to teach at this British school. In fact, most of our teachers were from England, British. We were from Sunderland, Preston, you name it, everywhere, you know, uh, London, etc. He came over to teach there and started directing plays in our local theater. And I was one of his actors. And I was also his only, as in in my year, I was the only one who did biology. So I was his only biology student. So the two of us just hit it off. He literally sat next mm-hmm. to me and we learned, right? I kind of inadvertently did things that made him happy. <laughs> so I ended up doing biology because he's a biologist. When I was 16-ish, I did this play. And at the end of it, he came to me, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, you really should consider doing this for a career. He said, you're an actor. Mm. That's what you are. Very nice. Very nice. I've never forgotten that moment. And I, of course, I thought it was ridiculous when he said that. I'm like, be quiet. You're going to be stupid. Hi, just popping in here to ask if you could help an immigrant out. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and recommend it to friends. A five-star rating and review on iTunes also goes a long way towards getting the word out. And we're really keen that the podcast is as interactive as possible. So follow us on the socials, all the details are in the show notes, and get in touch with your suggestions of interesting immigrants to feature on the show. We'd really love to hear from you. Thanks, guys. Now, back to the conversation. You were whipped up by Deloitte, weren't you? Was it with those um, recruitment people that come to yep. the university? Is that who it was? Yeah. Um, because I remember when I studied in the UK, I saw them like descend upon the campus one yep. week and they had their banners and their suits and their tables. And I was like, who are these people? And apparently, yeah, they sign you up to work yep. for multinational. And I was like, okay. So you you signed up. I started applying because, you know, my cousin Baron was applying. Everybody around me was applying. So I just joined in. My heart wasn't in it and I didn't know my heart wasn't in it. So I just kind of carried on, applied to everywhere, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, PwC. All of those lovely people. All of those wonderful people and doing wonderful things in the world. Thank God for them. And <laughs> Yeah. Can I ask, Babu, did you have like a critique of capitalism at the time or were you just like, it's a job? Not at all. I absolutely okay. thought not only is it a job, but it's the most elite job. It's where all the respect was. We had some people who already graduated. They were getting 40 grand bonuses. So you also think of the money. My thing really was I wanted to be a businessman. So I used to try and import and export rice, import and export mangoes and avocados because I would talk to anybody who'd stand in front of me. But I never got to actually do that big deal. I was aiming way too high. Deloitte just seemed like, okay, if I go there, get a 40 grand bonus. Hmm, I I could do this. I could do that. I was thinking of myself. I was also thinking of family back home in the Gambia because there's a big family network. And being one of the ones who's quote unquote successful financially means you can provide support. So there was also that driver. And in my family network, my parents were getting older. They were definitely people I wanted to be able to support when the time was right. Yeah. And also they paid for your education. They'd they'd put a lot of money and time aside for that. Can you describe what the corporate world is like? Because, you know, for someone (laughs) like me, who's got absolutely no idea, except I've watched Wolf of Wall Street. Is it like people are snorting cocaine and (laughs) toxic relationships here and there? And is it that kind of thing? Deloitte wasn't like that. It wasn't that bad because Deloitte is 
an accountancy firm, which means... But it's still a corporate watchdog, isn't it? A kind of... Corporate watchdog. If I had all the language I could use to describe the corporate world to you, and not to offend your listeners, then I would <laughs> tell you what I really thought about the corporate world. But it was soul-destroying, just to put it yeah. very simply. You know, I had clients all over the place, and I, as Deloitte, you work as a hired gun, basically. I remember finding out I was being billed out at 120 pounds an hour. So that's how much the clients would pay for me to be there and work. But I was only being given 12 pounds of that. That's one side of the corporate world. Jesus. That's like the woman pimping you out for three pounds an hour. That's Basically, the same thing. Same exact thing. I actually had a terrible racist experience at, during my training where the guy, one of our trainers said to me, I think they should send the Dutch, the British, the French, the Germans back to Africa to sort it out. You know, and it's a dinner. At the dinner, I'm the only black person out of 40 recruits sitting next to the only Indian person who turned, and you know, a silent hush over the whole table. And then I just thought, nah, that's not right. And I said to him, listen, I actually fully disagree with that. And then, of course, because he thought, holy Moses, this could work out really bad for me. He started um, offering me jobs in Charlotte, in America, and so on and so forth. You're trying to make up. But yeah, we we called him KY and treated him really badly. Um, (laughs) I know, rude, rude, rude young students. But yeah, I, I was there, sat down in this office, and it struck me. I thought, I don't know how people are going to take this, but I'm going to say it. I thought these people, these people colonized Africa. I couldn't believe it because the level of incompetence, and I'm I'm 22, three at this point, in my suit, turning up for work. I'd been trained. I was also used to a certain work ethic. So I just focused. And I was surprised at how haphazard, slapdash, and no disrespect meant this was 20 years ago. So maybe things have changed. But what I saw then, I was just like, I don't understand. And I understand why they need this much money to make this work. But I remember thinking, these people colonized Africa? How? And I had the epiphany that actually, these people are colonized too. (laughs) In a way, by a small ideology run by a small group of people somewhere. I don't want to go into the whole, I don't buy into this whole reptilian nonsense. I think there are some people who genuinely benefit from this system and other people who do not. If you don't wake up and smell the coffee, you won't know. You're not going to necessarily live a creative life. You'll turn up, do your work, consume what you need to consume, and then go about your business. If it makes you happy, good on you. I hope you have a wonderful life. But for me, I was sat there thinking, somebody get me out of here. I put on, I got to about 18 stone in weight. Really? Yeah, I got massive. Wow. Massive. So would you say you were you were depressed at that time? Depressed as hell. These orange carpets, I'll never forget, you know, working with different peeps. And then I, I noticed this culture that on a Friday, then it was the pub. And, you know, I was raised Muslim, wasn't drinking. So you get there and I realized people were trying to drown their sorrows. I mean, it sounds like you ha- were having your kind of life snuffed out of you, really. Yeah. And the light. Yeah. You know what? It was the lie. All that effort in school. All that effort at uni, trying to be a good boy, all that study, all that order that they'd created, all that masculine energy that's about order, 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 order. And I thought, right, here we are. I've now done everything that I need to do. And then this is what's at the end of this rainbow. I sit in an office counting things and it spilled into my weekends. I thought I would sit there with my then girlfriend and we were bored stiff. Anna and I still comment on this. We've been together almost 13 years now. Bored on the weekend? Why? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you've got yeah. potential for life and you're alive, anything can happen. But we, I was literally sitting on a weekend and go, I had money. I could have gone and done stuff. But I was like, I don't, I don't know what to, I don't know what we're going to do. Should we go to the cinema again? But I didn't realize I was in a very low place. And all my creativity had been removed. I remember actually the day I got my phone call from my cousin, 
And he visited my mom in Gambia, found my number and came and called me. I hadn't spoken to this guy. I hadn't seen this guy seven years before that. When I was like 14, 15, sorry, I, I, this was about, I was about 23, 24 at the time when he called. He called, he started talking about that he's a director in Brighton. And that's what made me think director of a, you know, company. company. And he yeah. was like, no, 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 no. I direct plays in Brighton. It was like lightning because my brain just when I was stood outside Hounslow Borough Council when I received that phone call. So because that time I didn't want to have a phone call inside. And I was like, director, I've always wanted to be an actor. And he said to me, oh, my girlfriend's sister's an actor. She goes to drama school. Please give me a number. I said, all right, when I hung up, I'll send you her number. He hung up, sent me her number. I called her. I mean, a bolt out of the blue. I call her up. She happened to be in her break. And she says to me, yes, I'm at Alra Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. It's just one of the drama schools. Well, there's many of them. Well, I knew about the poor school. And I heard of Rada. And I was like, right. And she said, go online, go on the Dance and Drama Award website, and you'll see all the schools that are there and see which ones are eligible for funding. So I went back inside of my desk, looked up, looked it up straight away, picked the number of schools that were one-year courses or the poor school, which had a two-year, printed them all out, filled out my application form, took my checkbook out, put 30-pound checks into each envelope, franked them and sent them that day. Went home and told my girlfriend, I've applied to drama school today, to four drama schools. Getting there and seeing those people, they were intimidating to me. But it was also fantastic walking around. Oh, I can't even tell you, this is making me emotional. I remember walking around the dance studio where I did my first ever audition. I can't describe the feeling to you, Christine. It's that thing that you have to arrive home. You know, you have to get to the place that is your place. And that was it. I knew right then and there. In fact, I was breaking it before I went in. But the moment they said, Babakar, I said, yeah. Obviously, they were using my full name at the time. What have you prepared for us? I said, um, you know, Leontine from Much Ado About Nothing and um, Couch Potato Santa. And they went, great. Whenever you're ready. Couch Potato Santa. Yeah, a speech about... <laughs> It's a monologue about Santa refusing to get out of bed. He refusing to get out of bed and Christmas is coming and this guy is trying to convince him that he needs to get the hell out of there and get on with his life. You know? um, that's a good choice. Yeah, I mean, that was very unexpected. I knew nobody else yeah. would use it, you know, and um, that's the thing. You want to have something that nobody would use. As you said, you'd put on weight by then. and Perfect. <laughs> you, probably, <laughs> you had the girth as well. Exactly. That's so good. It was great. It was it was fantastic. I got accepted there. I got accepted at the poor school. So I canceled my other two auditions. I thought I must be doing something right to be accepted yeah. in the first two places I went to. Told my boss at Deloitte at the time, Volker Glover, who again, I give a shout out to. He was one of the toughest bosses I've ever had. It was called BBV, Big Bad Volks. And he used to be a, a, an SAS guy before that. So he, he was wow, tough okay. as nails. And, um, but, you know, raised good African boy. I never spoke back to him, never challenged him, just did my job. And I went and told him, hey, Volks, um, I want to say something to you. I've been accepted to drama school. And he got up, took me to the smoking room. He, he used to take me there when he smokes. I don't smoke. And as he was smoking, he said to me, good for you. Good for you for getting out. And then after that, he sent me 100 quid a month for 13 months while I was at drama school to buy food. That is so nice of him. To this day, we see each other. When he comes to London, I go and hang out with him and I'm in a play or something. I tell him he comes, you know, phenomenal man. So you trained for a year at the, at the Oxford School of Drama. Then you started to get work and then it was just glitz and glamour from there on in, right? <laughs> no way. <laughs> You know, you know that it wasn't glistening. I know, I know. So you had, you, I'm sure you had to battle the um the poor actor syndrome for a while and all of that. And you know, well, you're a hustler, as you say. You had yeah. to get in there and hustle. And I did. Um, what were the toughest times there in those early years? It's looking into the abyss, the unknown. When you don't have an acting job and you maybe have just lost your money job, you know, your day job, and 
you can see the the money running out by the end of that month. That's a tough feeling. And that, that creates a lot of doubt and uncertainty. But I took to treating London like a video game. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured, go, I don't know, go to the Union Theater tonight. That's three points. Jump across, go to the, um, you know, the Arcola. That's three points. And you never know. You go to the Arcola, you meet somebody, you get talking, anything could happen. So it just generally speaking, those were the toughest times. And the doubt, the self-loathing, you know, thinking things like I'm fat, black, ugly, and I can't act. Just thinking I'm absolutely not built for this. This isn't, this industry isn't meant for me. And it's, you know, I'm not going to make it. And there's that feeling of feeling so alive when you're working. And when you're not, it's like, wow, I can't even think right now. I've never been a jealous person. I don't really have that thing of like, if my friends are doing well, I feel bad about it. I want them to do well, but there is a sense of what about me? There is that desire that you want to also be doing well as well. So occasionally when you, you know, when I'm teaching in and I travel one hour, 15 minutes one way and one hour, 15 minutes back to work for two hours, teaching this kid and lovely kid as well, but teaching him in uh, Kensington in his, you know, parents, five million pound house. And I'm... (laughs) On my way back home, and I've made 21 pounds an hour, and it's 42 quid, and I know that that's one of my only shifts that week. And I was holding my dad's old briefcase thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? You know, what is? Mm. can I really legitimately call myself an actor? To be blunt, Anna's support made a massive difference there because she was like, I got a good feeling about you. You're going to do well. But I will say this, Christine. That went on for many years, and I kind of just let the current take me wherever. Once Anna got pregnant, I thought it's now or never. Shit's getting real, man. It's real because that belly that's growing right over there, it doesn't give a hoot about my explanations. Like with Anna, I can say, look, I don't think I'm going to make anything this month. And she can go, okay, fine. We'll figure something out. And we figure something out. We always do. Thank the Lord, you know, but um, when I- It kickstarted you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just became impossible. I was like, something has to give. My man room. with a mission. Yeah. I was yeah. treating myself like I was the CEO of my own company. I would absolutely call my agent and say how I felt and what I wanted and what I wanted to see more of. I went, in, I prepared better. I went into auditions better. I, my confidence started growing. I did a lot of work on myself mentally. So I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as this hopeless person, feeling more love for yourself, growing. I just started mm. to try and grow as a human being. And of course, that has many other benefits outside of acting. But that was the driver. And I just pushed and pushed and pushed, you know. Can I quiz you a little bit about being an African in a British industry? Yeah. In the British entertainment industry. What I did notice that happened to me is, and this started in drama school, was that I was trying to be the quintessential English gentleman. I thought, because I'm not white, I have a problem. So I have to make sure that um, I'm not scary. I'm not the scary black man. I have to make sure that people are comfortable around me. And this is subconscious stuff. If it's conscious, you maybe thought about it twice and then it goes in your subconscious and becomes a thing, a monster all by itself. So your authenticity starts getting deleted and you start trying to fit in. I did it with my accent, started changing it. I did it with my mannerisms, how I behaved. I became very self-effacing to the point the first ever film I did, that was the review. An extremely wonderful self-effacing performance from Mr. Babu Sise. You know, and you go, oh, thank you. Of course, when I looked at what self-effacing meant, it was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's not what I was trying to get. But, you know, you play who you are. Um, at the time. Mm, okay. What actually happened in the end was Brexit happened. And that was very gutting for me. I just felt like it was a kick in the teeth. So I was walking around basically cussing under my breath and saying, I'm sorry, you know what I've said to you earlier, but I don't ask for anything from the British government if I can help it. And on top of that, I pay more in taxes, sorry to be blunt, than some people earn. It's just the reality. So I was really defensive. 
proper. And I was annoyed with some people that I knew who'd voted for it. Ooh, okay. Who were very close to home. All that stuff was playing on me for about two years. And then it subsided, as things like that do. But on top of everything else, I just wasn't at ease. Financially, we were, I was earning a lot, but we were also incapable of managing it. Like it was just mm. expensive, the life. And I had to keep working. I wasn't happy. And that loneliness, because it was just the four of us in our little boat, that communal feeling of having a big family around you and everything else. And I could see right through the unhappiness I had. And one in March that same year, 2019, said, should we move to Gambia? We should move to Gambia. He didn't say, should we say, I think we should move to Gambia. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. I can't work there. There's only one TV show and, it's, and I think I have to pay to be in it. So no way. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't trust my career enough to go away from the center. And but three days of thinking about it, she knows how to get me. She always gives me an idea and then leaves me alone for a few days to, to wallow. And I went, you're absolutely right. And I went to Gambia, checked everything out on a small trip, called her up and said, let's do it. Put the house on the market. And by July 16th, we were there. Amazing. Yeah, we're going to make that our home. So we think of building our home there and the kids are happy as ever. I love it. When we're there, we're so relaxed. You know, it's a beach lifestyle. It's so chilled. And if I have work and need to travel, then we do it. I have three, four month contracts somewhere. It's the same anywhere when, when I'm here. So it's just, yeah. they have a ton of support. I used to have this analogy I'd give of this monster that's attached to my throat that I keep about a hundred yards back. And I guess what I'm saying is that's my authentic self. Because I mm. felt my authentic self wasn't fit for purpose. Couldn't be fit for purpose if I wanted to get on. I had to adapt to British life, you know, which, sorry to be blunt, the British people are wonderful people, but they don't always tell you what they actually think. And where I come from, people will tell you, you walk through a door, Baba, what happened? How, what have you been eating? Look how fat you got. No one would say that to you here. Never. They'll be dead quiet, smile, laugh, but they leave. They'll call their friend. Oh my goodness. I've just been with Babu. You should, you should have seen Babu. Oh my God. So... Our matriarchal group, my mom's group, came to the house before I left Gambia when I was 18 and sat me down and said, you're going to England. Watch your back. British people will not tell you what they think. So read their face. Try to understand what they're actually thinking instead of what they're going to say. But of course, that's hard. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. You know, you're constantly second guessing people. People aren't brave enough to confront you. At any point, let's avoid confrontation because everything has to be peaceful, peaceful. But in Gambia, going back there, that monster that I keep back there that will say to you, I'm not happy. And I started being very British. I still have a ton of Britishness in me. But when I was, when it was back there, what's happened over the last two years started in Gambia. And here's that monster in me and now one. And so it changes everything, how I interact. Take this conversation, Christine. I'm not stopping myself from saying anything I want to say. It's like, this is what I think I'll say it. I'm trying to avoid swear words and stuff like that, obviously out of politeness and respect. But the reality is that I'm not going to edit to my truth anymore. So it's that authenticity. So any immigrant who's listening to this, get back to the authenticity as soon as you can. Do not play the game of wherever you are. <laughs> and it's had such a profound impact on my career, such a profound impact on my relationships and also my mental health. I am so happy. I'm literally skipping around. I catch myself singing, have my headphones on. I start dancing. What am I dancing about? I'm on my own. The loneliness is way less, way yeah. less than it used to be. And I know it's come from this integration that, of the time I spent in Gambia. And even in my performance, you know, with Wolf, I mean, the Wolf's a devil anyway. <laughs> it's just like, well, <laughs> let it all out as it is. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Never go back, you know. I'm um, go back to that old version of me. That look, age also has something to do with it. I think as you grow older, but Gambia definitely accelerated it for me. Can I ask you what kind of parent you are? I was an anxious parent to start off with. That same thing I say about the monster. 
when you're trying to push out your authenticity, you also want your kids to be a certain way. So with my daughter, who's like effervescent and fire and just runs around like a mad person, I basically initially kind of didn't want her to be that because I thought she will suffer in the world. People will punish her, sit on her. But now, be yourself. This kid sang in this school show at her school, nursery school. You know, So I didn't do it for too long. A couple of years in, I stopped. And the kid was singing in her nursery school and um, he did a solo. And she hadn't prepared one, but he had. He'd written one. You know, And so she got up and was like, I want to do one. <laughs> she hadn't prepared anything. So, of course, the entire thing was, oh, goodness, what's this little girl doing? I'm like, go on, Hattie. Go for it. Do, it. do your yeah. best. And she stood up there and she obviously lost her nerve and sang a kind of half Half she did something. She did something. Yeah. And sat down. Well done, you. We have such a fantastic. I don't even want to talk about it too much before I start weeping on this podcast. Because you're away so much, and and you know that really has does affect you. Do you have rituals with your kids, like of how to communicate and how to keep in touch? Yeah. So we go on Zoom and you know FaceTime to talk and so on and so forth. But I think the main ritual is the bedtime ritual. So I do story time, and I have a character called Rabbity. And she comes out and, you know, starts telling these wild stories. And I actually got to the point where the kids would say, where's Rabbity's? The moment I, they see my face, they're like, where's Rabbity? And I'll be like, Rabbity's still downstairs. I think he's having a nap. And they're like, oh, can you, can you wake Rabbity up? <laughs> he's more interesting than you. Exactly. And then they come up with their own Rabbity's and blah, blah, blah. And so we just, we, I'd come up with these stories that I make up on the spot for them. You know, we just try as best. I make videos for them in weird places that I'm in. Oh, that's a nice idea. Me and Rabbity are, you know, we're on set today. Look at what's happening here. Rabbity's doing that and I'm doing this. And, <laughs> you know, oh, that's great. Or if I'm in a hotel, I create an adventure in the room for them and send it to them. Just stuff to connect. Do you have something like a guiding philosophy in life? I guess I'm a, I really buy into the idea of mindset that no matter what happens, it's how you react to it. That's the main thing, you know, because... I've been in the mindset of making myself feel beleaguered by a thousand and one things that are going on that are completely outside my control. Like if I have had a problem with being black, I mean, what am I going to do about it? <laughs> Actually, that's triggered the sort of philosophy. I want to be a net creative. The world we create and we consume. That's pretty much it. I want when we balance up my tally, I've created slightly more than I've consumed. That will do me. And because of that, I do have a naturally positive mindset because I get up with this, let me go make something. Hey, Babu, thank you so much. Thank you. For this conversation. Please give my love to Anna. I will do. Ah, it was a total and utter pleasure chatting with Babu Cisse, a.k.a. John Smith. Thank you, Babu, and do make sure you all look out for him playing the lead in Wolf on Sky, which promises to be a hell of a show. You've been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. Support for this podcast comes from the Paul Hamlin Foundation, and it is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. We'll be in your feed every week with a new conversation. Subscribe to our social channels for updates. Thanks for listening and catch you later. Mm-hmm.